Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Ross. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever I tune in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Ross, and I'm a guy as we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. Welcome to part four, the final installment of our series on the summer of 1933. If you have not joined us for the first three episodes, please go check those back wherever you find your podcast or through the SHSMO website. We looked at Bonnie and Clyde's travels through Southwest Missouri earlier in 1932 and 1933. Looked at the shootout at the intersection of 63 and 40 in Columbia in June of 1933. And finally, the Union Station massacre um, and the kidnapping of Sheriff Killingsworth by Adam Rochetti and Pretty Boy Floyd later on in June of 1933. And now we come to the final installment here, looking at what occurred at the Red Crown Tavern and Tourist Court in Platte City, Missouri. If you joined us for the first three episodes, you know I'm joined by my excellent co-host for the series, Kathleen Seal. Hi, thanks for having me back. Looking forward to, to finishing this off and getting getting to the end of at least this part of the story. Katie, when we left off last time, we were looking at really the aftermath of the Union Station Massacre. And, and, and as you told uh, listeners, you know, you kind of fo- followed it forward in time looking at kind of the end of the road for Adam Rochetti, the end of the road for Pretty Boy Floyd, and the kind of mystique and theories surrounding the Station Massacre. Back in part one, we left off where Bonnie and Clyde departed for Parts Unknown in a similar manner, and, and really kind of here in the aftermath of Union Station, uh, they're going to arrive back in Missouri in Platte City. But uh, take us through a little bit of what happened to Bonnie and Clyde between April of 33 when they're leaving Joplin and when they roll into Platte City here in July of 33. Yeah, so we did go forward a little bit. So we're, we're, we're bringing it back, summer 1933. So we left off with Bonnie and Clyde in April of 1933 after they have the shootout in Joplin. And for the most part, they leave for parts unknown. Events are still going on here in Missouri with the killing of Booth and Wilson in Columbia and then the Union Station Massacre. And really kind of the main part of Bonnie and Clyde's story here in Missouri picks up not until July. So in that kind of two month plus gap period, they are really moving around a lot. Uh, there are still series of robberies going on, encounters with law enforcement in other states. And there's actually in June, so while everything's going on here in Missouri, um, Bonnie's involved in a car accident in Texas where she's actually nearly killed and has burned pretty severely. So it's not like they can take her to get medical care at this time period. They do try and attempt a robbery to secure some funds so that they're actually able to lay low, give her time to recuperate. And this robbery uh, results in the death of another police officer. So they're they're adding another to um, their tally of the number of law enforcement um, that they've engaged. And the group, again, has to move on very quickly, even though, again, Bonnie's quite injured at this, po- this point and not having um, a lot of time to recuperate from those injuries. 
they go on to rob a series of stores up in Iowa. So again, a lot of movement here going on. They get a small amount of cash, not a lot, but um, you know, Bonnie's kind of in a, in a bad way. They've been on the run for quite a while now. So they head towards Kansas City, looking for a place where they can lay low. And again, this is you know towards the end of the summer, and this is where we pick up back with them here in Missouri, in particular in Platte City. Yeah, Katie, I think uh, Bonnie's injury is something that really drives a lot of this latter half of the story is that they don't, it's hard to travel. I mean, it's, it's uncomfortable for her to travel in a vehicle. You're constantly having to tend to her wounds and to those burns. You're having to buy supplies for that. I mean, that's going to exhaust your funds a lot faster than before. So I think that plays a huge role in it. And when they roll into the Kansas City area, there's this kind of debate amongst the group how far in do we go? You know, I mean, there's still the law enforcement search for the individuals connected to the Union Station massacre. And there's kind of that internal debate within the group about should we even stay or do we need to keep going? And, and it seems like from a lot of the accounts that this this arrival in Platte City is really a, a, a time when Clyde Barrow lets down his guard. For so long, he had been, you know, in and out. It had been kind of hit and run. It had been stay for a day or two. And he had learned his lesson seemingly in Joplin, where if you stay for more than a couple of days, you're already wanted. You're already being found out. You're already being, you know, in some cases attempted to be gunned down. So I think in a lot of the accounts, his decision to still pull into Kansas City, granted in Platte City, so north of the city there, is interesting because they seemingly decide to stay at a place that's a it's a, it's a really a central location there in Platte City, the, the Red Crown Tavern and Tourist Courts where they stop at, it was located at the junction of Highway 71 and Missouri Route 291. Today, if you were to find it on a map, you're looking at, you know, uh, just off of Interstate 29, and you're just across the interstate from the brand new Kansas City International Terminal now. I mean, it's it's literally... Uh, even today is a very prominent location on the map in Kansas City. Back then it was at a junction point. So you had people from all over who would travel there. It was a popular location for dancing and for uh, food and for accommodations. There was uh, service stations nearby. There was other restaurants nearby. It was a very populated area in the midst of a relatively rural section of, of northern Kansas City there in Platte City. So it's an interesting stop uh, on the map for them to select Ultimately, they take up residence there in the tourist courts that are behind the Red Crown Tavern. So this is going to be two smaller accommodation rooms, uh, kind of miniature apartments with a connecting two-car garage in between. There are supposed to be doors that connect the garages to the apartments, although there is an issue with one side of not having access directly to the garage, which is going to come into play later on. So uh, this is a very prominent location on the highway, not just simply for for tourism and for travelers, but as we kind of talked about in episode two, you know, uh, the prominence of these central locations was also very well sought out by the highway patrol. Um, and the Red Crown Tower becomes a central location for the rendezvousing of messages between officers on the road and um, other enforcement mechanisms to alert them to suspicious activity, to crimes in that are being committed, 
and to be on the lookout for other individuals. So not only is it full of people and full of travelers, but the Red Crown Tavern is also in many cases full of law enforcement because they're going there on a regular basis to meet and to eat and to discuss other matters. So an interesting choice of location, but seemingly by all accounts, Clyde Barrow doesn't seem to be bothered by this initially. Yeah, which is something interesting. This is not an, like, as you mentioned, it's not an out of way location where they can lay low. Also, um, this is another instance where Buck Barrow actually voices his concern, something he had done in the past, including around uh, the time when they stopped and tried to lay over for an extended period in Joplin. Um, if you remember from the first episode, Buck was even trying to get Clyde out of the life of, of criminal activity. But again, once again, here you have Clyde dismissing those concerns um, to, the, to the detriment of the whole group. But you have to wonder, yeah, they've been running for a while. But usually when they got to that point of, of not really wanting to run, they would head back to Texas. And I think, as you mentioned, it's it's probably Bonnie's injuries that really play a huge part. Did they go to this more highly trafficked area because they could get access to medical supplies? They could get her a comfortable room and board. Don't know for sure, but all of that could possibly play into it. But it doesn't seem like a good a good low-key place to hide out by any means. And almost right off the bat, too, there are a number of red flags raised. Um, they secure accommodations. They don't allow the owner of the Red Crown Tavern, uh, Neil Hauser, to help them at all with loading their materials into their into their accommodations. They say there are only three people. They, they hide two of the members um, quickly in the back of the car when they pull it into the garage. And then when they keep getting supplies and food and drinks and things like that, they buy for five instead of three, which is kind of a, a giveaway right away. I mean, you could be really hungry, granted, but when you're buying for five and you say you have three, it's going to raise, raise a number of issues. One thing that struck me really particularly was, and I've thought about this uh, ever since I first read this and, and the way people drive their cars and park their cars was they noted in one account that when they backed into the garage of the of the uh, tourist courts, they backed the car into where it could just drive straight out of the garage door, and they called that gangster style. And I had never considered that terminology before, uh, obviously for an easy, quick getaway when need be, but the kind of connecting of that early on, of the kind of gangster style backing into your, into your garage there uh, was kind of notable in that regard. But Blanche Barrow, who is Buck's wife, becomes that, kind of intermediary throughout the whole time they're there. She is the one who goes in and gets supplies. She is the one that goes in uh, to the tavern to get food and to get drinks. She is the only one that's really ever seen. Uh, they know there's other people inside the tourist court accommodations, but they only ever see her. For many accounts, uh, the way she dresses seems to be kind of standing out for people as well, wearing kind of, trying to think of the terminology, writing trousers is what kind of one description of it was. So she catches the attention of people, not just simply from from her constant travels back and forth, but, you know, taping up newspapers on the window, suspicious, backing your car gangster style into the garage, suspicious, you know, buying supplies for five instead of three, suspicious, buying medical supplies at the service station across the road when it's kind of known that 
Bonnie Parker is suffering from burns and to be on the lookout for people buying, you know, large amounts of medical supplies in that kind of setting all raises a number of red flags. And yet Clyde Barrow seemingly brushes off all these things whenever Buck or Blanche raises the issue to him about maybe we need to be on the move again. Maybe we're being found out. Well, even at one point, Blanche is even questioned by the Platte County Sheriff Holt Coffee. And they're coming to realize as they're there for a few days, like the state highway patrol is in and out here. And it wasn't, maybe we should go ahead and pack up and move down the road. Um, but no, she's going out, as you mentioned, buying food, buying medical supplies, and not just medical supplies, but things used to treat a burn victim. Again, small town community, people talk, all of these little factors are, are starting to come to light and painting the picture of perhaps it's Bonnie and Clyde and the gang in these, in these tourist cabins. It, it is a rendezvous point for law enforcement and it becomes kind of a, a, a point of conversation where the owner of the Red Crown Tavern begins to talk with the law enforcement that are stopping by about these various things that he's seeing and suspicions that are raised. And it's not just simply the conversation, you know, in private between law enforcement and the owner of this tourist court. But in some accounts, you know, this place begins to get busier than ever because people are like someone suspicious is staying there. You know, what is going on? Something is going to happen. And I'm sure for law enforcement, they are concerned about their cover being blown, that they're planning to investigate more and more people know about it. You know, this this needs to be addressed in that way. So. Quickly, you know, Jackson County Sheriff's Department uh, is enlisted to send, send supplies up to Platte County. Uh, you know, they they call upon the Ohio Patrol to arrive. So you have a, a pretty large contingent of law enforcement that begin to show up and to kind of investigate the area, kind of very subtly at first, but then kind of ramping up in, you know, in their presence as we get closer to mid-July of 1933 there. And on the evening of July 19th, Blanche makes her usual, you know, short walk from the tourist court accommodations over to the Red Crown Tavern to get, uh, you know, more supplies. And in her accounts of it, she feels like the mood has changed. Not Now people are not just simply talking to her and, you know, niceties and such like that. But now there is a feeling in her sense that people know who I am. People know what we're doing. Everyone knows who we are. Um, and when she goes back to tell the rest of the group, again, Clyde Barrow is like, you know, okay, <laughs> whatever. Uh, again, quite striking in that regard. And then she is asked to go again back to the Red Crown Tavern to get food late at night. And she kind of balks at that idea. She doesn't want to go back over there. She doesn't like the feeling of the room. She doesn't like being stared at by suspicious individuals. So instead, W.G. Jones, who had been with them since, uh, you know, way back in 32, uh, is enlisted to go across the street to another restaurant in the area uh, to get food. This is kind of seen by law enforcement who notice another individual going out and being kind of uh, unique in that regard because Blanche had been the only one to ever be the communication back and forth. Um, and by this point, as we roll into July 20th here in the early morning hours, law enforcement decides now is the time to act. Yeah, so law enforcement at this point is looking to engage Bonnie and Clyde and, and the gang. 
But what's something really of note, I think, in this particular instance is law enforcement is a lot more prepared. They pretty much know at this point who they are dealing with. They have the background of these information, whereas before, Bonnie and Clyde almost always outgunned any law enforcement they encountered. Uh, they had greater number of weapons, greater amount of ammunition, which really always put law enforcement, um, you know, at a disadvantage. So at this point, they had called in reinforcement from Jackson County Sheriff's Department. They have the Platte County, Missouri State Highway Patrol. They had brought in more weapons, more manpower to be able to meet this threat. They took a little bit, I would say even longer time actually watching the location, see who was going in and out. In places like down in Joplin, everything happened so quickly. There was no time to really formulate a plan or or set things up to the advantage of law enforcement, which allowed them really to get away at that point. So here law enforcement is really trying to take their time and really set it up to the point of being able to surprise the group um, and have that greater manpower, that greater firepower as well to attempt to capture this entire group. So now we're very early hours, like 1 a.m. of July 20th, and law enforcement are looking to engage and apprehend the group. So around 1 a.m., the group of law enforcement approached the tourist courts. Again, the windows are kind of newspaper covered and everything like that. The garage doors are closed, but the confrontation is about to start. And, and kind of with previous episodes, a bit of a content warning here. We'll do two of them in this episode. Um, this particular instance here, there, there might be some discussion here of some things that might be disturbing for listeners. We'll kind of do it again here later on with what happens uh, with Bonnie and Clyde down the road. So law enforcement approaches uh, tourist court and they knock on the door and Blanche answers first. Um, and she kind of tells them that she is not prepared for visitors. She needs to kind of get prepared. Um, and she informs them, the law enforcement of this, but also she talks loud enough that in the neighboring cabin, they can hear everything that's going on there. And that kind of alerts the rest of the group, particularly Buck and Clyde, to get ready. And almost immediately just gunfire just explodes out of the windows of the tourist court directed at law enforcement. Law enforcement had come prepared, as you said, Katie, they had, they had extra ammunition, they had weapons. They'd also kind of developed some boilerplate type armor in many ways to kind of protect them from some of the, the heavier ammunition and weapons. So the, the initial barrage of, uh, of shots is a lot and it happens very quickly, but there is only uh, a few cases of officers being wounded. There, there are no deaths as there were in Joplin almost immediately with the two officers being gunned down. Additionally, law enforcement had parked a vehicle in front of the garage doors to essentially block them in. And, and this is kind of a planning on their part that serves them well at the beginning, but it kind of goes awry very quickly. The officer that is inside the vehicle is hit with gunfire. Accounts differ on whether he panicked or whether he thought something more was going to happen or he got confused. But in the midst of this, the, the horn begins to blare, which confuses everybody on site about what's happening. The lights are getting shot out. And in the process, the vehicle is moved uh, by, by the driver away from the garage doors. And there is the opening for Bonnie and Clyde to flee and, and the rest of the gang to flee. 
to quickly get in the vehicles to drive on. But as we mentioned earlier, you know, access from the inside of the cabins is not possible to the garages on both sides. So instead, Buck and Blanche have to then flee outside. So they have a, a gauntlet to run by to get from the cabins to the car as it is exiting the garage. As they leave the cabin, they're running towards the car um, and Buck is struck in the head by gunfire, wounding him pretty severely. They end up carrying him into the vehicle and they gun the engine and they are gone. Uh, kind of with Joplin, they are departed for parts unknown down Highway 71. Law enforcement kind of regroups. There are some calls for them to follow them. It seems like they're pretty shaken by the whole incident. They don't chase them. Instead, they begin to fire towards the vehicles, shattering the glass uh, in part of the in part of the vehicle, which actually then wounds Blanche in the process as well. And they flee for what law enforcement assumes to be parts unknown. Right. So they're heading north at this point, ends up um, towards Iowa, which is, you know, later determined near Dexville Park, where they, they kind of give away their, their whereabouts later on by discarding a number of dirty clothing, bandages, that sort of thing. And at that point, they're engaged again by some local law enforcement and actually local citizens as well. And this is on July 24th. So a few days later that they've been fleeing, trying to seek medical care, take care of their wounds. Because again, Buck and Blanche are both wounded. They're injured again at this point. And then Buck Barrow ends up dying from his injuries a few days later. Blanche, because of her injuries is caught. Buck is deceased. She's brought back to Platte City where she's charged with attempted murder and she ends up being sentenced to prison. So that's the end of Buck and Blanche Barrow, but Bonnie and Clyde still go on. They're they're injured, but they are able to flee at this point to be caught again by law enforcement at a later date. Yeah, so they had fled. They had fled north to Iowa, as you said, Katie. That they're they're kind of found out there. Buck is dead. Blanche later goes to prison, but she's arrested by this point. Um, and then you basically have Bonnie Parker, Clyde Barrow, and W. D. Jones, who are trying to find a safe haven. It seems like in a lot of ways, it had been Texas before, but as we as we kind of talked about, they they had been a while since they'd been back to Texas. So they kind of are traveling around the country, really, here after the Iowa run at Dexfield Park, looking for a place to stay. Uh, they go through parts of the Midwest. They go through, they go out west a little bit into the mountains. They go down to the south and the southwest, just kind of moving about constantly, you know, trying to avoid detection, but, you know, constantly robbing stores and robbing service stations, trying to get supplies and cash, hitting town armories to get ammunition and weapons. They're not changing their ways. They're just trying to move faster to kind of get away from what is chasing them. And by this point in time, a lot is chasing them. You know, by the fall of 1933 there, you know, only a couple of weeks after, after Platte City, a couple of weeks after Dexfield Park, they're trying to find somewhere to go. And they reluctantly decide to go back to Texas and to see their family. Um, and they kind of all split up there. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde go back to West Dallas. W.D. Jones goes down to Houston, where he's actually arrested later on for his involvement in these crimes. And by 1934, as, as the calendar turns to 1934, 
they're not only being investigated for for Joplin, they're not being investigated for Platte City, for Dexfield Park, you know, but for all the various crimes they had committed, all the law enforcement members they had gunned down, um, and even Clyde Barrow's involvement with a prison break at Easton Penitentiary, where he had previously uh, had served a prison sentence. All of this is now on them. We've talked about in episode one, you know, their photos are well known because of the Joplin shootout and subsequent photos that were found there. So they are known to the public. They are known to law enforcement. They are being hunted. And I think they know it in a lot of ways after what happened in, in Platte City and Dexfield Park. Um, and soon after this point, as we get into 1934, former Texas Ranger Frank Hamer is brought on to kind of be the leader of this posse to hunt them down. Yeah, and I think something of note that I, I found interesting, it, it, yes, they are on the run, but it's not like they're running scared. They are still actively robbing, still actively engaging law enforcement. There's one instance in February of, of 34 where they're actually stealing a car, again, back in Springfield get into a pursuit shootout with police and they have this massive amount of weapons and ammos that they're actually able to essentially outlast law enforcement by simply having more ammunition and then getting away. So they are still, even with the, the death of Buck Barrow and the arrest and incarceration of Blanche at this point, they're still going on to pursue this this life of, of criminal activity. It's not like they're moving, you know, completely out of town. It, it makes me think of, of Charles and Adam who completely leave the area. They go out east and completely lay low to get out of, of that limelight, to completely get out of the region. And, and they do ultimately end up coming back this direction. But Bonnie and Clyde never really take that attempt like they could easily have just headed west or, or headed east and just gotten completely out of the area that doesn't seem to have ever been a possibility for them they they stay relatively in the area and are still engaging in this criminal activity which just keeps the focus and probably increases focus and attention on them as time goes on and it seems like law enforcement began to kind of figure out their habits, mapping out, you know, they usually hit armories, they usually hit service stations, they usually will rob stores, they're not doing a lot of bank robberies after Orinoco, you know, they kind of get a, a usual list of incidents to kind of know, well, maybe this might have been them, this might have been them. they kind of are able to map out across a multi-state area, what was likely a Bonnie and Clyde hit and what might have been somebody else. Um, and Frank Hamer is able to really kind of almost figure out their next move. Not exactly, but to kind of figure out what states they're probably going to be in. Um, and this leads to a break in, in the case, really, when Hamer and law enforcement get a lead that Bonnie and Clyde and the Barrow Gang, which had now numbered a number of different individuals over time, is going to be meeting up in Bienville Parish in Louisiana, which is not far from Shreveport, which is uh, a meetup point at the home of Henry Methman's parents, who was a member of the gang. So Hamer and law enforcement stake out State Highway 154, which is kind of runs through that area in Louisiana. And they wait for a long period of time for basically one car 
can they find the one car they're looking for? And if you're familiar with Bonnie and Clyde, you know it's probably going to be a Ford V8 because that was the preferred car to steal for them. And on the morning of May 23rd, 1934, that one car, that Ford V8, comes speeding down Highway 154 and slows as it approaches a vehicle that's parked strategically in the roadway. And again, for, for listeners here, this is another kind of content warning here for what's about to happen, because this is probably the most gruesome part of the whole entire series here. Law enforcement is hiding just off the roadway there, and as the vehicle slows, they open fire. Uh, I mean, this is their moment. They're not going to miss it. All told, 100 plus rounds of ammunition enter the roadway and enter the vehicle very suddenly. Clyde Barrow is killed instantly. There are accounts that Bonnie is heard screaming as the gunshots are going off there. They're, but their bodies are riddled with bullets um, almost immediately, and they're, and they're killed almost immediately. And it's over. This long search for Bonnie and Clyde is finished. But that's not really the end of the story, though, Katie, is it? Bonnie and Clyde, it, this, is, this is the end of the road, but this, it's just part of the beginning of kind of a longer series of engagements between law enforcement and criminals over the next few years. Um, at this time period when, when Bonnie and Clyde are killed in May of 1934, that's when you have those um, national crime bills coming out. So there's really this huge step up by local law enforcement, by the FBI to really track down all of these different criminals that they have on, on their list. And there's a lot more bloodshed that follow these events. You know, 33 was already a very violent, very bloody summer, especially in Missouri. But what follows over the next couple of years kind of continues that pattern as well. So as law enforcement are clearing the scene there in, in a 23rd, 1934, it closes that chapter. But as you kind of point out there, that kind of the longer history of what's still to come. I think something that's quite striking in this and, and to kind of tie it all back together is just simply the, the sensationalness of it, the, the shock of it. Something that still strikes society today. You know, we can think about, you know, how these individuals are portrayed in popular culture through movies and books and, and TV series and things like that. And even at that moment, as police are removing the vehicles, as they are trying to send the bodies of Bonnie and Clyde to the undertaker, they end up actually towing the car with the bodies still inside because that's the only way they can get them out of this, out of the area, because a crowd is amassed around the, the shootout site to see the bodies, to see the shootout. And even in a very macabre way, to collect souvenirs of pieces of glass uh, one person was seen trying to cut off pieces of clothing and, and even fingers from Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, it's this grotesque image of, of the sensationalism, but something that very much was of interest at the time of people who were shocked and horrified by what happened in the summer of 33, but could not turn away in many cases. They wanted to see the end result of what had happened and what had been happening for so long. So ultimately, Bonnie and Clyde are buried in Texas separately, which was against their wishes. But the story is not buried, and the story of the summer of 33 is not lost in history, as some cases and some stories are, but lingers on now for the last 90 years, bringing us up to today. Yeah, Bonnie and Clyde, I think, in particular, of anyone else we've talked about in, in this particular series, 
their story is definitely one that has lingered, continued on to be seen in popular culture, to be researched, and it, not just in, you know, Texas or Missouri or Louisiana, where they spend a large majority of their time. It's it's really a, a national phenomenon. It's it's a name that you you mentioned that everyone's going to know them. So yeah, I think being able to track their story, but then also put it into the greater context of even, I mean, just what was going on in Missouri, let alone what was going on in the nation. Cause you know, we focused mostly on what was happening here in Missouri, but I think if, if people are able to take those events and then look at greater, larger events also across the nation, you're going to see a lot of similarities there. So it, it's not isolated to Missouri, but there's certainly a number of large key events that I think happen in Missouri uh, that really spark a lot of what follows. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri.